Good morning, church. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to finish up John chapter 8 today. We are coming uh, into the, the middle of a conversation, or really at the end of a conversation. So, uh, verse 48 isn't really a standalone verse. You kind of have to know what's going on beforehand. Uh, so, if you need to pause and read uh, the background beforehand leading up into it, that's fine. Um, but I'll, I'll start in verse 48, and then I will provide you with some of the background if you missed the last couple weeks of teachings. Um, so let's start. We'll read through uh, verse 48 of John chapter 8 through the end of the chapter, verse 59. Uh, I'll pray for our time, and then we'll study the word of the Lord together. It says, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's not a popular memory verse. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead. What do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? I read that wrong. Verse 54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, just, we ask that we would have eyes to see. Uh, who you are. We pray that we would be able to come to you with hearts that are willing to receive and ready to love, uh, not as your enemies come to you challenging and seeking to defeat you, but, but as your disciples come to you uh, even silently and willing to receive with open hands. Um, Lord, we, we see at the end that, that you hid yourself from some uh, and, and you saved your life. We pray that you would not hide yourself from us but that we would be able to see you so that we can worship you well. We pray, Jesus, that, that we would delight in the truths that we see about you, that before Abraham was, you say, I am, um, that you are the Son who, who the Father seeks to glorify. Uh, let these truths resonate in our hearts and our souls and our fellowship in our church, uh, and let these words, these inspired words of Scripture, have their full effect um, in order to, to unite our hearts to fear your name, to make us the church that you would have us be. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so as, as you can see, we're coming to the ending of a conversation that's been going on really since chapter 7. And it hasn't been a friendly conversation. Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are attacking Jesus on a variety of fronts. Uh, they're challenging his authority. He's... Um, he said some really remarkable things like, I am the light of the world, and that's ruffled some feathers. Uh, even before Jesus showed up in Jerusalem for this specific trip, we saw at the beginning of chapter 7 that there were those in Jerusalem wanting to kill him. So that's kind of the, the tone of 
the crowd, even before Jesus showed up. They were looking for him so that they could destroy him. And the subject matter of this kind of conversation where it's Jesus saying, I am the light of the world and talking about his father and all this, this should provide for a lively debate, but instead it just kind of descends into insults. Um, it, we've, we've really, we're really scraping the bottom of uh, the rhetorical barrel uh, as far as an argument goes, and, and Jesus' uh, parents are fair game for insults to say, who's your father? And we're not born of fornication, you know, implying that Jesus was. And Jesus eventually responds to these kinds of things and says, you are of your father, the devil. And so you can kind of imagine the, the feeling in the room, so to speak, the, the tone of voice, the elevated blood pressure, and everything else that goes with a conversation that has come this far. And so we're coming to the end of that kind of conversation, the kind of conversation that could end with, you know, bloody noses and bloody knuckles. And um, if you've listened to the last week's sermon, you know, you can hear more about how we got here. Uh, but as you can see, we're already to the insult part of the conversation. Um, we're not even, no one's pretending on the Pharisee side, no one's pretending to have, you know, logical order in their conversations. This is not an official debate with a mediator. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Ah, uh, the good old Samaritan insult. Um, it's great because they can insult Jesus and an entire uh, ethnic group of people at the same time, which is really their style. It's just racist and pointless, really. They didn't think Jesus was a Samaritan, but they figure everyone they don't like must be a Samaritan. So they, they throw that insult out there, which just says, tells you the kind of people that Jesus is dealing with here. But they also say that he has a demon. Now here it's a, it's a little bit more than just name-calling. I think you'll agree, but this accusation would be this, um, yeah, this accusation that Jesus had a demon, that he was demon possessed, would be thrown at Jesus at other times during his ministry, even directly following his miracles. They would say that he casts out demons by the power of demons, which is, of course, ridiculous. It's almost as ridiculous as calling Jesus a Samaritan. Um, you know, this part where they say you cast out demons by the power of demons is where Jesus uh, famously quotes his good friend Abraham Lincoln and says a house divided against itself cannot stand. Or maybe it was the other way around. I'm not sure. But in verse 49, Jesus says, I do not have a demon, obviously, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Jesus is saying, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not seeking my own glory. But the Father is the one who seeks. The Father seeks to glorify the Son. And it's the Father who judges um, and judges in, in the terms of evaluating. It is the Father who evaluates that the Son is righteous and holy and obviously not demon-possessed. Um, now, but this claim in verse 51 really escalates things. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Jesus is saying, well, he's saying, I don't need to um, boost my own ego. I don't need to seek my own glory, but I am claiming to have the final authority to give eternal life. And he is claiming authority even over death itself. 
Now the word see there is interesting. In verse 51 it says, the, the one who keeps his word will not see death, never see death. It's not talking about a passing glance. The word is very specific in, in Greek. Um, it refers to a, a steady gaze. He, he has said before that the one who does not believe in the Son is condemned already. This means that their face is set towards death. The orientation of that person's life is deathward. And we, we see this practically in our society. When a people uh, have only this life to keep them going, they will stop at nothing to preserve this life. But that's really morbid if you think about it. You know, because it, it means that they'll try and preserve this little, little bit of life, even if it means to continue to live through horrible means. Uh, unforgiven, unsaved people are concerned with mortality. Their eyes are set towards the end in fear, usually. On the other hand, the one who, who keeps the words of Jesus, they're not headed in that direction anymore. Their, their gaze is fixed on something better. The word keep should remind you of Jesus' words in verse 31, where he says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. To keep and to abide, that's to make your home there. And continually find your place in his word. And if you do this, the orientation and the trajectory of your life is no longer towards death. It's towards life. He says, the one who keeps my word never has to look death face to face. That, now notice that each time Jesus speaks, he leaves room for repentance, doesn't he? Because if a person heard what Jesus just said, they would have the option then to say, well, I want that. I don't want death. I want life. Lead me in the way everlasting, the way that you know Psalm 139 ends. But the people he's talking to always take a different direction. They never personalize anything. They want the conversation to be theoretical, hypothetical, and they never personalize and say, well, how does this apply to my life? They say, now we know that you have a demon. We caught you. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead. What do you... Did that wrong again. Who do you make yourself out to be? They're in it for the argument. Not for the good of their souls or the good of anyone else's soul. That's really the wrong way to encounter Jesus, isn't it? They think they've caught him, but they haven't. Actually, they never even really hear him right. They don't even hear his words correctly. They say that Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. What Jesus said was, you will never see death. And what he essentially meant with using that specific word for see, he says, you will never stare death face to face. You will never have to go, you know, in that, that death word direction. Those are different things, isn't it? To taste death. Believers will taste death. Hebrews says it is appointed for every man to die once. But we don't have to fear it. And we certainly do not have our gaze fixed on it. We are not orienting our lives towards our death. We are orienting our lives and our, and our sight and our gaze to life and life eternal. But that's not what the, uh, what the Pharisees heard. But, but they, they think they've caught him. And here's how they argue. They say, you say, if we keep your word, we won't die. But Abraham and the prophets are dead. So you're saying that you, and by connection, those who follow you, those who believe in you, are greater than Abraham. And that's ridiculous. Now, the simple answer to all of that would have been, 
Yes. Jesus is greater than Abraham. And our salvation, in a way, is greater than the salvation that the prophets understood. They were looking forward in visions through metaphor to what we actually enjoy on a personal level. Yes, Jesus is greater. But their, their final question is what Jesus addresses first. They say, who do you make yourself out to be? And again, they've asked this before. They say, who are you? They've said that before with a bad attitude, but it's a good question. So they ask it again. Who are you? But the, now they're asking, who do you make yourself out to be? What kind of person are you? And he says, if I honor myself, this is verse 54. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be like a I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. He says, I've talked about myself enough. You're saying what kind of person I am? I've already said I'm the son. I'm his son. That's what you need to know. I've said what I needed to say about me. I already said I'm not here to honor myself. I don't seek my own glory. The Father seeks and judges. My Father honors me. That means I don't have to honor me. <laughs> You say, who do you think you are? And I'll tell you, I am who the Father says I am, and that's enough. But that's not going to help you because you don't know my Father. And even though you say he is your God, you can't hear him. You can't see him. If I said, I don't know my Father, I'd, just, I'd be as, just as much a liar as you. But I can't do that. So I'm going to keep on saying the truth. I'm going to keep going back to this one point. God is my Father. If that's not clear enough for you, you, you don't get anything else. Keep reading. Verse 56. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you... Uh, I lost my place. Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. I want to give attention to verse 58. We can be sure that this verse is an important verse, a weighty verse, even if we had nothing to judge it by except the reaction that it raised. After Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, at that moment, something clicked. And his audience immediately picks up rocks with the intention of throwing them at Jesus until he was dead. Now, most of my conflict resolution experience is with children, with my children, of course. And if, if one small person is very, very, very angry at another small person, one of the things that I need to figure out is, what did you do? Um, because usually that very, very angry person didn't just decide to be very, very angry without something else happening. And if it's one of the babies, one, you know, one of the twins screaming in anger at something, it's usually something, you know, the other person did something really cruel, like he didn't let them throw a glass jar at the cat, things like that. I need to figure that out, find out what happens. But it's worth finding out what made the angry person so angry. These people are very angry at Jesus. They are willing to kill him, which is significant for a, a few reasons. Because if they do, they are taking into their hands the right of capital punishment, which had been removed from them by Rome. So they are picking a fight with Rome by killing Jesus in a strange roundabout way. 
But these people are very angry and they're willing to take that, you know, in stride and kill an innocent man. And Jesus said, who, you know, who uh, convicts me of sin? He had asked that before. And all of them are saying, we do. We'll, we'll call this a sin. We'll call this blasphemy and we'll kill you for it. And this is because he said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be eternal. Jesus is claiming to be divine. This is a big deal. Now, we've talked about the I am statements of Jesus, and most people don't count this one in particular as one of the seven I am statements, uh, because he's not saying what he is. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. You know, there's seven statements like this, but um, but he's still using these strong words, all capitals, ego, I, me in Greek, borrowing from the burning bush passage and other places where God speaks directly, I am that I am. And he is saying to these men the same thing that he told Moses when he called him into ministry. I am that I am. This is an emphatic statement of self-existence. He is saying, I have always existed, and I am who I am eternally and perfectly. I change not. My compassions, they fail not. As I once was, so forever I am. And you really pick up on the mysterious and the divine tone of this statement that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in the way it's translated for us. Notice he doesn't say, before Abraham was, so was I. Or, before Abraham was, I was there. Now, you know, that those would be correct grammatically, uh, but he says, before Abraham was, I am. Your past tense is my present tense. And the only way that works is if I dwell in eternity. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. And it is my belief that this uh, timelessness is something that we won't understand even in heaven. That's just a personal belief, perhaps, but it's something that we will be able to acknowledge, but not, not fully grasp. When John had his visions in the book of Revelation, he sees a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus was crucified in the world, in a real place, in real time. These time frames, when they mash up in the prophetic sense, can only be reconciled in eternity. And it is eternity that Jesus is claiming for himself. You are not an eternal being, in the truest sense of the word. And this is why I don't think we'll understand this in heaven necessarily. Um, Because even though you have eternal life given to you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will have eternal life. And Jesus is saying, you know, the one who believes in me won't see death, won't stare at death in the face. But you had a beginning. You had an origin. And because you had a beginning and you were created, you had a, a start, you'll never be eternal in the sense that God is eternal. But Jesus is claiming that level of eternity, that level of, uh, of eternal life, eternal nature, that, um, that says, I didn't even have a beginning. Where in Revelation we read that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And all of that's packed into this statement. Before 
Abraham was, I am. And he's saying, I'm, I, I don't change, my compassions don't change, and I've, I'm forever in both directions. Now this is a beautiful, mysterious, baffling truth. But it's one that is clearly taught through John, and is clearly taught through the rest of Scripture. Not just that God is eternal, which is true and, again, big enough to keep you up at night. Um, but, but this verse about Jesus himself, God the Son, being eternal uh, forever in both directions. That's a truth taught through John and the rest of Scripture. This is not an isolated verse. This is not a tangent. It's truth. And something John the Apostle has been warming up to really since chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that's sort of a big deal, but it's very, very clear. Jesus is claiming here to be before Abraham, ever since, even since the beginning. Now, as we have the privilege of reading through the Old Testament, through the lens of the New Testament we can see exactly what Jesus means. We can go back and see the Son of God appear to the saints all the way back since Eden and through the Old Testament. So we can see that what Jesus says here in chapter 8 is true and fits with the entire narrative of Scripture. So I want to show you some of these instances of Jesus before Abraham. We've been picking up a lot of these in our midweek study since we started in Genesis like eight years ago or so. You know, we've seen several uh, instances and I'll, I'll review some of those. Um... Instances of Jesus appearing to Abraham even before the nativity. Um, Exodus 33-22, God speaks to Moses and he says, You cannot see my face, for no man may see my face and live. Now that, that verse is very clear and there's not a lot of subtlety to it, right? You cannot see God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that God is one who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You cannot see God. Even in the Gospel of John, there are several references to this doctrine that God cannot be seen by mortal flesh. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. And then John writes in 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. Jesus tells people in John 5.37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And then in John 6.46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So there is obviously a clear understanding about this from the patriarchs to Jesus and to the apostles. That the holiness of God prevents observation. Uh, we, we can't see him because he's hidden. We can't see him for the same reason that we can't stare at, at, at the sun. You can't see it because he dwells in unapproachable light. However, we read several places in Scripture where God interacts with people in a physical, observable form. And these are called theophanies, uh, which really means revelations or manifestations, appearances, of God, or Christophanies, revelations or manifestations of Christ. So you can see that the, the no one has seen God doctrine uh, needs addressing. Even in Eden, in Genesis, after the temptation and fall of man, Adam and Eve hide. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, this seems to indicate that God would come and walk with Adam and Eve, as in with legs. You have to have legs to walk and make sound. 
And, and if that's not physical enough for you, the chapter ends with God making Adam and Eve skins of animals. God slaughtered animals, skinned them, and made clothing out of the skins for Adam and Eve. He was functioning there as a priest, showing the necessity of blood for the covering of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, Hebrews tells us. But he was also ordaining Adam and, Eve as, Adam and Eve as priests as well. In Leviticus, you'll read that the hides of the sacrificial animals were to be used by the priests for their clothing. It's just kind of neat. Genesis chapter 3 seems to show a God who was seen by sinners. And a God who has hands and feet. This was Jesus showing Adam and Eve forgiveness, justice, redemption. Much later in Genesis 18, we read that the Lord appeared to Abraham. Appearance is visual. Abraham saw something. Now, we actually talked about this a little bit last week. This is when three angelic beings come and, and um, you know, they look and sound and eat like people do. And they visit Abraham in his tent. And then they go on to Sodom and they judge Sodom and they rescue Lot. But we know that one of these beings was God himself, because it says the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then as, as a Abraham intercedes for the few righteous in Sodom, he addresses this being as God himself. This is a Christophany. This visible manifestation of God, of Christ. This was the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, appearing to Abraham before the Incarnation. Now, we mentioned before, during the lifetime of Abraham, there's the appearance of God to Abraham at, at, you know, at Sodom. But even before that, God uh, showed himself to Hagar, Sarah's servant, the mother of Ishmael. When she escapes, she runs away and it says an angel, which means a messenger, shows up and talks to her and comforts her and says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, that doesn't sound like something a mere angel would have the authority to do. And she picks up on this, and she responds to this angelic being, You are a god of seeing. And later she says, Truly there I have seen him who looks after me. She had an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ. Hagar saw Jesus. After the life of Abraham, there are instances of where God is seen in human form, or some, somehow he is seen by human eyes. Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Who did he see if no one can see God? He saw the one who is in the bosom of the Father who declares the Father. The ministry of the, the Son of God is to declare God the Father who no one has seen. If someone has seen God, he's seen God the Son. Isaiah saw Christ on a throne, high and lifted up. Centuries before that, one of my favorites, Samson's parents see Jesus. And this is one of my favorite instances of a Christophany. Samson's father's name is Manoah. And in Judges 13, Manoah's wife, I'm pretty sure her name was Womanoah, she says, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And this angel tells her that she's going to have a son and he's going to be pretty special. And then Manoah prays to the Lord that he would send this messenger back so they could ask some questions about how they're supposed to raise their, their boy. And then this, this angel appears again and Manoah asks, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Hmm. Pretty cool. 
And then they ask some questions. Manoah asks him if what his name is. And the angel says, um, well, I'll read it. It says, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? And when your words come to pass, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah, you know this from the Christmas cards. Then Manoah offered him some food, and the angel says, Why don't you just offer that food up to the Lord instead, because I'm not going to eat your food. And then he does, the angel vaporizes and goes up to heaven in smoke. Um, and verse 21 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Important phrase there. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. He saw God. How did he see God? No one saw God. We know it's impossible for anyone to see God. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen the Father, Jesus clarifies. So how did he see God? Because John 1.18 says that while no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, or manifest him. He showed him. He's, he has caused him to appear. And the Son has been declaring the Father, revealing the Father, displaying the Father's character ever since Eden. And this is what the Pharisees aren't getting. They're, 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 they say, God is our Father, but we hate you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's impossible. Because what I'm showing you, what I'm saying to you, the, the way I act, all of that is exactly as the Father would act. And these are the, exactly the things that the Father would say. I am showing you the Father. In the upper room, I mean, we got to cut them some slack because even the disciples didn't really get this, right? You know, the disciple says, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? You still don't get this? I've been saying this since chapter 8 with the Pharisees. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you read in the Old Testament passages and it says, the angel of the Lord... It's a good chance that you're reading about the Son of God himself revealing the Father to people who cannot behold God in all his holiness. This is how Jesus could say honestly and truthfully, before Abraham was, I am. It's also how he could say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham witnessed what these people couldn't see even though it was right in front of them. Now, how? <laughs> you could say that Abraham witnessed God's mercy uh, on Lot, even, and on that instance, and saw in a symbolic way the coming of God's mercy in Jesus. Or perhaps more clearly, you could go to Genesis 22, a formative event in Abraham's life and the life of all who are descended from him in faith. When, he, when Abraham offers Isaac, his only begotten son, on the altar, and the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, Stop. Now, in this story, Abraham had already pro prophesied, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's a prophetic word about the crucifixion, which would take place in the exact spot that Abraham would sacrifice his son Isaac, on the same mountain range. Abraham saw the justice and the mercy of God, which would only be fully realized in Jesus Christ. So when God spared Isaac, and the ram was sacrificed in its place, in its stead, and they looked forward to the Lord who would provide himself a lamb, you had better believe that Abraham was rejoicing. Abraham saw the day of Jesus. 
He saw it from a distance, but he saw it clearly, and he received it with joy. He saw the day of Jesus coming more clearly than those who were looking at Jesus right in the face, because he had received mercy, and he could anticipate further mercy, fulfilled mercy. This is why the people wanted to destroy him. For anyone other than God to say these things is pure blasphemy. They're right about that. For anyone else to say, before Abraham was, I am. They're blaspheming, plain and simple. Now, usually, Jesus doesn't offer proofs the way his challengers want proofs. You know, and it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And when they say, show us a sign that we may believe in you, he doesn't. And when they say the day after he fed the 5,000 uh, and their families with bread and fish, they say, feed us again so we can believe in you. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't play those games. But here in this passage, in kind of a strange way, the, the last verse of this chapter is a sort of proof that, that casts down the objections that the angry crowd has raised along with their f fists and throwing rocks. He walks right through them. They've been looking for a miracle, right? Well, Jesus is going to do it right in front of them. Now, it's certainly possible that there could have been a non-miraculous escape. You know, people hide from other people without miracles all the time. I think that would be difficult in the situation that we're reading about. Um, but this says that he pass, passed through the midst of them. That means he walked right past them. He, he didn't turn around and go the other way. He went towards them and walked right through them. Not like through their physical bodies, but in, in between them. This has happened before. In Nazareth, in, in Luke chapter 4, listen to this. Um, this happened after Jesus preached in the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, and he made some people upset um, by calling them out on their lack of faith. And so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, this is Luke 4, verse 29, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, I don't see how this event is not miraculous. They take him up to the cliff, and he allows it. And then when he gets there, to the crest, to the, the, the peak of the cliff, he says, no, no, not today. And then he walks back down the hill through the midst of them, and he went his way. I think the same sort of thing happened this time. When they picked up the rocks to throw them at Jesus, Jesus, through divine means, no doubt, was hidden from them, and he walked right past them. You know, they said, you're not special, you're not God, how dare you claim such things? Who do you think you are? And then Jesus behaves in a godlike way and escapes. Now, how ironic... Think about this with me. How ironic, how sad, really, that the miracle he performed now resulted in being unseen rather than being seen. The miracle is the veiling of the eyes of unbelief. The whole nation, and still to this day, people have the idea that, that miracles result in faith, and that's just not always true. That's not what we see in, in the Gospels or in the Scripture. There's a spiritual lesson here in what happens with Jesus and these men. And many of you have probably already learned this lesson at some point in your lives, but the angry, combative, antagonistic people who are looking at Jesus only to take aim were not given the ability to see him at all. Christ was hidden from them, and then he departed from them. 
when they were looking to God for the purpose of aggression, they were blinded. And they missed him completely. Now this this principle plays out in two ways. Um, the, the first is simple, and it's what we see here. When people come to Jesus with fists raised, they won't find Jesus. If you're going to God with your plan to defeat him, he just won't be there. Not in his glory. Not in his beauty. He can put up with your questions and your challenges and your complaints and all of that, and he'll he'll take it. But But you won't be able to see him if that's why you're coming to him. The other way this plays out is, is only because God is merciful, but it's the, it's the Damascus Road version of the same story. Saul of Tarsus was going to Christ, wasn't he? By way of his church, he was armed and ready to throw the church in jail, but then he is blinded, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In both ways, Jesus intervenes. Both Saul and the Pharisees, and these Pharisees and John, they're, they're blinded. They, they're blinded by their own prejudice against the Lord. So they are, But they're different in, in that Saul's blindness ultimately resulted in his good, his salvation. And again, the, the principle is simple. Those who are going to go to the Lord to challenge him, to fight him, to defeat him, will be at a disadvantage because their own attitude will blind them. The beautiful mercy in all of that is that God who blinds people... <laughs> can do so with the ultimate intention of opening the eyes of their understanding. As Pharisees got saved too. And they wouldn't if Jesus had allowed them to kill him right there before it was his time. Jesus had mercy on these men by saving them from the most horrible crime that a human could possibly commit, killing God. Now, in a similar way, or in, in a, the reverse way, I guess, the one who comes to see the Lord in worship in love. This person will be given eyes to see so much more than they bargained for. And we think, you know, that it's our intention that matters, or our attention, that, that we will make, we will learn more about God because we decided so, and we're going to study really hard, and we're going to decide to see him more clearly. But it seems to be clear that the real eye-opener or eye-closer will be love or its absence. To love the Lord your God with all your heart that enables you to see more of him. To love the Lord is to see him. And in our passage, we see that the, the, the ones that hate him, you know, to, to resist him, this is to become blind to him. Christ revealed himself throughout history to people in various degrees and various levels of clarity to people like Adam and Eve and Abraham and Hagar and Manoah and Isaiah. And they all saw the Lord in part. But you know who really saw God? You know, if you look in the Old Testament, someone who, who saw him with understanding, I would, I would pick David. I mean, we don't have the clear angelic encounter. We don't have God visiting him in human form and having a little chat. We don't see that in the life of David. But a large part of our theology, our Christian theology, is from the Psalms of David. David saw God. He understood God. He praised God. He loved God, and it seems to be his love of God that gave him the illumination of the character of God. He was after God's own heart. And it seems that this level of revelation is granted not to the scholar necessarily, not only to the scholar, but to the worshiper. And we see the opposite of that in our passage. 
Um, so of course there's you know a, a bad example to avoid in this section of scripture. We don't want to be the the Pharisees, but but we see the opposite, and we have something to pursue. We want to be worshipers. We see Jesus who delight um, who delights in in showing us the Father, and our response in turn should be delight. We want to be the ones who see Jesus and delight in His eternal nature, the mysteries, even the stuff that blows our minds, the stuff that we'll never understand. We rejoice when we hear him say, before Abraham was, I am. The correct response to that level of theological uh, statement should be, whoa! We should be in awe. We respond in worship in order to see, in order to avoid blindness. Now, at, at church, in our, in our live service, uh, when I finish preaching this sermon on Sunday, we'll close with a song. And if you're watching this at home, you, you might not have a worship team to lead you, but as I'm sure you know, there are many other ways to worship, and it's okay to sing no matter who you're with. Uh, what I'd really like you to do now is segue from this time studying the Word and seeking Christ high and exalted, and, and go to a time of, of praise and thanksgiving and worship. If you're in a group and, and you guys will sing, then sing. If that's really off the table and you don't want to do that this week, um, then give thanks. Praise the name of Jesus. Worship the great I am. And you'll see that as you worship him, as you come to him in love, then your eyes are opened to see greater things about him that you didn't know before. So let me pray. Uh, and then we'll worship Jesus, the great I am. We are in awe of how great you are, of how good you are, of how kind you are to us. You have shown us the Father, and we pray that we would never grow weary of seeking the Father's face. We would never grow weary of seeing more of who God is in the face of Jesus. I pray that you would bless your church. I pray that you would receive our praise. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.